as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. Holy Father, we live in a culture that mocks you, that ignores you. Some who even question where you are in a time like this. Uh, We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That there's never an emergency meeting of the Trinity in heaven. That you are ruling sovereignly over the affairs of men and nations, ultimately culminating in a plan to bring your Son from heaven to earth, to judge the living and the dead, and to reign victoriously. We thank you that as believers in Christ, our hope is found in the truth of your inspired word. And so we ask this morning as we open it, that you would open our hearts and minds to its truth. Help us of all people to display great victory over the flesh. Help us to demonstrate what the kingdom of God is. You said it is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy. We pray in the week before us that we would be sensitive to the needs of people around us. You told us that we are to go into all creation and to share the gospel. Thank you that you, Lord Jesus, being the gospel itself by your death, burial, and resurrection, has secured eternity for us. And we bless you for such kindness and mercy. And now I look to you and pray that you would come fill me and anoint me and use me and speak through me to the hearts of all that are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name and for his sake. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 6. As you can see, the title of this morning's message is Overcoming Worry and Fear. And let me just say, fear and worry, they are Siamese twins. And typically, well, at least for the born-again believer, when you solve one, you solve the other. And right now, our nation is covered over, our world is covered over in both fear and anxiety and worry. Solomon wrote this in Proverbs, anxiety in a person's heart weighs him down, but an encouraging word brings him joy. And so I want to bring you some joy this morning. If you have a fearful, anxious, worried heart, I want you to get God's perspective because we of all people ought to be joyous. In Psalm 42, King David asks and answers his own question. He asks, why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? And then he says, because he had found the answer, put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. On one day when his life was literally physically threatened, he penned this in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Well, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to help to deliver us from our fears. He's going to give us some instruction on how to have a heart that is clear and clean and focused on him, free from anxiety and worry. Now, we're in that section of scripture that Augustine in the fourth century called the Sermon on the Mount. It comprises chapters five through seven. And I love this this sermon uh, that he gave because it speaks not just to theory, It really speaks to where we live each and every day. And if you're not familiar with this sermon, the focus is not so much on how to become a Christian, how to get saved, 
But the focus and thrust of this sermon is how to live in light of the fact that we are saved. Now, he addresses both issues. But for the most part, this sermon is directed toward the believer. Now, let me set the context here of our passage. In the first half of chapter 6, Jesus describes our private life. And in the second half, he describes our public life. In verses 1 through 18, he describes our private life as it relates to giving, praying, and then to fasting. But now, in verses 19 to 34, where we want to give our focus this morning, he moves from our private life to our public life as he deals with money, possessions, food, drink, clothing, and the ambitions that you may have for your life. Now, unfortunately, some Bible students uh, take this chapter and they somehow dichotomize the religious from the non-religious, the religious from the secular. But you cannot put them into two separate compartments. For the believer, everything is religious. Everything is spiritual. Whatever you do, you're to do for the glory of God. And when you tend to separate the secular from the sacred, the results church history has shown has always been disastrous. And so Jesus, through this chapter, is going to remind us how it is that we live in God's presence, how we live with an undivided heart. Nothing worse than a divided heart, James tells us. A double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. God wants us to have a clear, undivided heart. And so this morning, we want to begin by reading our text of Scripture. I hope you have a Bible. Uh, I will have the slides for you, but if you don't have a Bible, you should come sometime to meet the pastor if you're living here in South Carolina, and we would like to provide one for you. Matthew chapter 6, beginning now in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in riches, wealth, mammon. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, as you can see from this text of Scripture, the issues that Jesus addresses were huge problems in his day and maybe even bigger problems in our day. Now, first, in verses 19 to 24, he gives us a warning against greed, against avarice. And then in verses 25 to 34, the second half of this text, he warns against anxiety and worry. Greed and worry, avarice and anxiety, they go together. And you see that right from the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. The two are brought together because people who are consumed with material things are typically always people who are consumed with worry. And so in this section... Jesus deals first with two treasures in verses 19 to 21. He deals here with earthly treasures and then heavenly treasures. Then in verses 22 and 23, he deals with two bodily conditions. He calls one light and the other he calls darkness. Then in verse 24, Jesus looks at two masters, one called God, the other money. Then in verses 25 to 34, he deals with two mindsets or two preoccupations, one with our physical bodies, the other with the kingdom of God. And you can't sit on the fence. You're either in one camp or the other, as he will underscore. Now, sadly, the lure of materialism, especially in a nation that has been blessed as we are like America, consumes many. And whenever you're consumed with money and things and then acquiring the next possession, then you are surely going to be gripped with worry. So Jesus is going to help us because he knows his people are not above worry and fear and anxiety. And he wants us to delineate in our thinking the true from the false, the wrong way from the right way. So he's going to give us four principles that if we understand and not just understand, but apply these principles, you're going to have a life that is free from worry and anxiety. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If you're using your note-taking outline that you found there online, the first principle, principle number one is the question of our treasure, the question of our treasure. Let's look now at verses 19 to 21. We read, starting here in verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." Now, in these three years that Jesus has been ministering, and in these three verses that he gives, he is giving, uh, asking us to focus on two different treasures. And it ought to be easy for us what we should want to collect, where we should put our treasure in. I mean, think about it. There's only two kinds of treasure, that which is temporal and that which is eternal, that which is corruptible and that which is incorruptible. And so purely from an investment point of view, The wise person would want to invest in that which is not corruptible. Now, before we look at his teaching, we need to ask some important questions here. Was the Lord Jesus prohibiting us from uh, being provident? Was Jesus prohibiting us from owning possessions? And of course, the answer is no. This is not a prohibition against private property. 
In the Decalogue itself, one of the commandments is do not steal. That assumes that you are taking from someone else who owns something. He says do not covet. That assumes you are lusting after someone else's property. And so this movement in America towards socialism, which is really godless, it's rooted in Marxism and communism, denies the whole concept of personal property. But the Bible plainly teaches us in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. He's not prohibiting private property. He gives you things in which to enjoy. Paul will say in the same letter in 1 Timothy 6, 17, it is God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, I meet a lot of Christians who are always trying to give an explanation for what they have, whether it's their home or their cars or their boats or their clothes. But listen, if God wanted you to have that possession, doesn't matter if you bought it on sale or you got a deal on it. If God wanted you to have it, then you are to enjoy it. And if God didn't want you to have it, then there's no circumstances that can change the fact that you shouldn't own it. And so, first and foremost, Jesus is not forbidding the ownership of personal property. But for that matter, neither is he prohibiting um, thinking ahead and saving up for a rainy day. Uh, You've heard me in my recent financial course, uh, a number of sources document this, that 50% of Americans have no more than $400 in savings. And so many Americans are not ready for the challenges of our day because they're not applying biblical principles of finance. But God wants us to be prepared. He says in Proverbs chapter 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. And so God is very clear that it's not an evil thing or a wrong thing to prepare for the future. He used a great man of God named Joseph to save a whole nation from perishing and many of the surrounding nations um, there outside of Egypt. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, Paul warned, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, Paul is looking upwards He is asking children to make sure as their parents age that they are well taken care of and provided for. But you could certainly apply the principle downwards. Certainly a dad should be uh, caring and loving and protective for his family to make provision. And so neither is having possessions or enjoying the possessions we have something that Jesus is speaking against. So what exactly is he forbidding in this command when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? First and foremost, selfishness. People who are misers, people who are hoarders, people who are materialists. You might want to circle two words in the text, for yourselves, for yourselves. Throughout this sermon, Jesus repeatedly refers to the heart. In chapter 5 and verse 8, he refers to the pure of heart. In chapter 5 and verse 28, he refers to lust in the heart. And here in this section, he speaks of the direction of our heart. In verse 21, he reminds us that our heart will always follow our treasure, whether it's down to earth to a this life only kind of perspective or whether it's up to heaven. 
In a word, laying up for yourselves treasures on earth is not a prohibition against being provident. provident. It is a prohibition against being covetous. God does not want you to covet. He wants you to enjoy what you have. The question is, what has you? Do your possessions own you? Or do you, as a steward of what God has given you, do you see that these are God's things for you to enjoy and to be a good steward over? And so God's not against wealth, as you read the Scripture. Some of God's choicest servants were wealthy. Abraham, who's deemed the father of the faithful. In Genesis 13, it says, Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. King David, who in both Testaments is called a man after God's own heart, when his life is summarized, the chronicler writes this, then he died at a ripe old age, full of days, riches, and honor, and his son Solomon reigned in his place. Joseph of Arimathea, who was prophesied in Isaiah 53 that a rich man would be in the death of the Christ. He was a rich man, and he was the one who provided that temporary tomb for the Lord Jesus. Job, he is a man that God describes as righteous, blameless. He is described in chapter 1 as fearing God and turning away from evil. And then a few verses later in Job 1.3, God tells us, His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Job was the Warren Buffett. He was the Bill Gates. He was the Jeff Bezos of his day. A very, very wealthy man. And that was before the Bible says at the end of Job that God took everything he had and he multiplied it twofold. My point is, again, the Bible is not speaking against being wealthy. But it does tell us in the Mosaic law, Moses will write in Deuteronomy 8, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you power to make wealth. My friend, if you are wealthy, if you are rich, don't be conceited in your riches. It is God who gave you the strengths and the gifts and the abilities to be able to multiply wealth. Now, it is true that money has a way of keeping people out of the kingdom of God. Classic example that Jesus addressed was the rich young ruler. We can certainly make it an idol. But again, in this sermon, he is not principally dealing with the lost. He is focusing on those who are saved. The issue at hand is not in getting into heaven, but getting our treasure up in heaven, to lay up treasure in heaven. He's reminding us that earthly things are transient, but heavenly things are eternal. Earthly things will pass away. And so he gives us three illustrations to remind us of this truth. Look at verse 19. Jesus commands us, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So first, he reminds us of earthly treasure that moth can eat. It's the smallest little creature. I had a moth get into one of my suits and basically ruin the suit. It made it worthless. In addition, rust, and we live here on the East Coast close to the water, you know its corrosive power. You know what rust can do. And then here he speaks of thieves that can break in and steal. Now, in Christ's day, uh, moths would get into people's wardrobes. We walk into a closet, and we may have five shirts that we have to choose from. In the first century, they might have had only one set of clothes in the typical household. 
And if a moth ate into the clothing, it was destructive. You would have rats, you would have mice, you would have worms that would get into the stored food. Not to mention rust and its, again, corrosive power, even in that day, and thieves that could break in and steal. Now, in our day, we may try to protect what we have with a corrosive paint or uh, rust-proof paints or with insecticides or with security systems and uh, video monitoring and all that we have. But wealth, even in our day, can be disintegrated. Inflation can eat it up. We can enter into an economic slump. We can borrow money that we don't have. And we are barring ourselves ultimately into an implosion in this country. You cannot break the principles of God. You cannot break the laws of God and not be broken by them. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. And sooner or later, it is going to come and bite us this incredible debt that we are taking on. Job knew um, how important it was to think about the next life. He said, naked I came into my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Think about the pharaohs of Egypt. They were buried with their gold and all of their expensive treasures, but they left it all behind. All of the precious metal I own in this world is right here on my finger. That's all the gold that I own. But I want to tell you, you get to heaven someday, and the streets are literally paved with gold. And so Christ is admonishing us. It doesn't come out in our English Bibles, but literally it appears twice in the Greek New Testament. Jesus says, stop treasuring treasure. Stop treasuring treasure. Some years ago, I read about a man named Charlie Dobson who lived in Ontario during the Canadian garbage strike. And the garbage was piling up all around town. And this man, this 82-year-old man, each day he'd take his coffee rinds and his grapefruit rinds and his uh, coffee grinds and his eggshells and old newspapers, and he'd put them into a box. And then he would put a beautiful gift wrapping over it and a bow all around it, and he'd set it out on the curb by his house. He'd go into his house, get behind the curtain, he'd watch. And sooner or later, some car would stop and take his gift-wrapped garbage away with them. And I thought about it. That's really what the devil does. He gives us gift-wrapped garbage and that he causes us and encourages us to focus on this life only, the here and now only. And Jesus is saying, stop treasuring earthly treasure. Look at verse 20. Listen to his advice. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So we need to ask a second question. What is it that really constitutes heavenly treasure? The Lord here speaks of treasures that moths cannot eat, that rust cannot corrode, that thieves cannot take from you. He's giving us advice on how to have a safety deposit box in heaven. And so how do you know really if you are laying up treasure in heaven or if you as a Christian are simply laying up treasure on earth? Well, here's a good thing to do. You add up everything that money cannot buy that moths and worms and rust cannot destroy, and that no one can come and steal away from you, and then you will really know just how rich you are. 
Jesus is talking about doing things that will last for eternity. And a careful study of Scripture, which, by the way, we carefully delineate in our Back to Basics series at searchthescriptures.org. If you don't have the phone app, you ought to go to the App Store and download searchthescriptures.org. And one of the courses we teach here every Sunday, we call it the Discovery Class. Online, it's called Back to Basics. And on the Back to Basics course, we carefully list those things that God constitutes as eternal treasure versus temporal treasure. But let me just give you a few. Number one, eternal treasure would be Christ-like character. Listen, when you leave this world, all you're going to take is yourself. You never see a U-Haul, as Dr. Graham used to say, behind a hearse. No, the only thing that you can take is yourself. And when God looks at your life, He will look at the kind of character that you saw developed after you were saved, and He'll reward you for that. Another thing that we cover in the discovery class that God rewards you for are those efforts to win people to Jesus. For the Son of Man, the Bible says, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. God will reward you for that. Now, I know some sow seed, some water the seed, and some harvest the seed. Maybe as of yet, you personally have never led someone through the sinner's prayer. But if you tried to win someone to Christ, Have you tried to give a word of truth from the Scripture? Have you looked for an open door? Are you praying for open doors? Have you even invited someone to church? Another way in which God will reward us is how we use our money. Do you use it for the local church and the world missions that a local church is to invest in? Or are you using it just for yourself? Another point of evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ, a judgment that Christians alone will experience, save people alone, not to see if you will get into heaven, but how God will reward you once you get to heaven is how you use your spiritual gifts. In a few weeks, I'm going to be speaking on the subject of spiritual gifts. God is going to look at the whole package, the gift that He gave you on the day you were converted, and there are 20 listed in the New Testament, at least 16 that are being given today and how you're using your time, talents, and treasure for the kingdom of God. So have you taken a look at your eternal portfolio? Some people are in misery, as you've seen on the news. A lot of people lost a lot of money in recent days. What would happen if you came home from work and an earthquake had hit your home and the thing was totally crumbled or a tornado had taken it down and you had no insurance? What would you have really lost? Well, it all depends on what you're really living for. And if you're living just for the here and now, then you would have lost it all. But if you are living for that which is eternal, though your house may be crumbled by an earthquake, you maybe have not lost a single thing in terms of what's really, truly valuable. So Jesus reminds us here in verse 21, for where your treasure is, There will be your heart also. What do you dream about? I mean, when it's just you. You're out cutting the grass. You're driving the car down. What do you dream about? What do you ponder on in your heart? Is it about the furtherance of God's kingdom? Or is it about the furtherance of your kingdom? I mean, does the kingdom of God really even matter to you? Do you care about the fact that people are going to die and go to a literal place of eternal retribution the Bible calls hell? Do you care enough to invite someone to church to share your testimony or to share the plan of salvation? 
Do you care enough to commit yourself in obedience to the New Testament to a local New Testament church? Do you care enough to give a tenth of your increase to the work of Jesus Christ? Do you care enough to give God your very best and not your leftovers? Listen, friends, God doesn't want your leftovers and God doesn't deserve your leftovers. God wants your best and he's admonishing us to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. Now, the scripture says that where your heart is, your treasure will be. The two are linked together. And the heart is really the center of personality. That it drives your intellect, your emotion, and your will. And he is clear that if we are truly living for eternal treasure, then your treasures and your heart will be in the same place, going in the same direction. All right, that's principle number one to overcoming worry and fear. Uh, it is a question of our treasure. Principle number two there in your outline. It is the question of our vision, the question of our vision. So the Lord now moves from two treasures to two bodily conditions here in verses 22 and 23. And the illustration that he gives comes from the realm of ophthalmology. Ophthalmos is the Greek word for eye, and so we get our word ophthalmology, two Greek words bled together, the study of the eye. Look now at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, knowing that almost every bodily activity depends on your ability to see, he uses an illustration from the physical realm to teach us about the spiritual realm. You need to be able to see, to run, to jump, to drive a car, to cut the grass, to cross the road, to use a computer, to paint the house, because the eye illumines the body through your hands and your feet. Now, certainly there are people with poor sight and people who are blind, who are able to adapt the other senses, but the principle nonetheless holds true. His illustration here is a factual description that he uses metaphorically to teach a spiritual lesson. Jesus is speaking clearly, not just of physical sight, but also of spiritual sight. And there are two words in these two verses that you might want to underline if you're using the New American Standard. The first word is clear in verse 22, and the second word is bad in verse 23. The Lord is contrasting here the clear eye with the clouded eye, the single eye literally with the sinful eye. Now, the Greek word that is translated clear is the Greek word alplus, and it literally means single, and so the King James renders it that way. The thought is, is that someone with a clear eye has a single-minded devotion or perspective. You see, there is a single, just like there is a single treasure that matters, eternal treasure, so there is a single eye that matters. And as we'll see in a moment, there is a single master that matters. Now, if you're using the ESV, it renders it the healthy eye and the bad eye. The HCSB renders it the good eye in the bad eye. The Net Bible renders it the healthy eye in the diseased eye. Now, the word bad is actually a play on words in the original. It's the Greek word pornos, 
We get our word pornography. It's often translated evil in Scripture. And so it's a word that has a moral dimension to it. And so the King James renders the second adjective as evil. And the New American Standard, trying to retain the planned words uh, from the original, uses the word bad. Now, many times in Scripture, the eye is equivalent to the heart. And so to set the heart or to fix the eye are equivalent expressions. There are many examples. Let me give you just one. For instance, in Psalm 119, the psalmist writes in verse 10, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. And then in a few verses later he will pray, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And so Jesus goes from having our heart in the right place to having our eye as being something that is sound and healthy. Now, don't miss the point. Jesus is saying, just as our eye affects the whole body, even so our ambition, that is where we fix the heart of our eyes, will affect our entire life. Just as seeing gives light to the body, even so godly ambitions will throw light on everything that you do. It's a question of vision. If we have physical vision, then we can see what we are and where we are going. Even so, if we have clear spiritual vision, a good eye, spiritual eyes, then we'll have wisdom and insight to live life well. Now, unfortunately, many people think they have wisdom when in reality they do not. For instance, you go off to the university, you earn a doctoral degree, and... um, but you don't know Christ as your Savior. Now, in the eyes of the world, you may be considered even a genius, but a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. You may have a triple PhD, as one of my professors did in college, but he was lost as can be. In God's eyes, he was a total ignoramus. Now, you may think you are wise, but in God's eyes, you may not be. So, Jesus says, if then the light that is in you is darkness... How great is the darkness? See, he's not talking just about intelligence. He's talking about wisdom. He's not just talking about learning. He's talking about the ability to live life well. And if your physical eye is clouded, if it is out of focus, then you will have double vision. And again, James says a double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. But the sad reality about a double-minded person is sometimes he doesn't know he's double-minded. Now, it's one thing. It's bad enough when someone says, well, I don't know what the answers to life problems are, um, but I just know I don't have the answer. Okay, that's, that's one thing. I don't know what the answers are. At least you're willing to admit that. But what is really sad is when a person thinks he has the answers, when in reality he does not. And many times people will pontificate their opinion all over the place. Remember, everything you believe is based on something. You read it in a book. Someone told you or taught it to you. You made it up, though there is really nothing new under the sun. But just because you believe something doesn't make it true. You can believe with all your heart, sincerely believe the wrong thing. And so in the book of Judges, God records for us the lowest moral ebb in Israel's history. Twice over in the book of Judges, right in the middle and right at the end, God says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, please note what the verse says and what it doesn't say. Everyone did not do what was wrong in his own eyes, 
but everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They thought they were doing right, but they were doing evil. And that's exactly where America is, and that's exactly where our world is. I'm going to preach a sermon, is God unhappy with the world? And the answer very simply is yes. God is unhappy with our world. You say, I thought he's a God of love. He is. And it's his love that grieves him. God was grieved, the Bible says, that he had made man in Noah's day. And the coming of the Son of Man will be both like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And in America, we have a redefined immorality. A little baby can be born, and the governors of New York and Virginia says if the doctor and the mother wants to kill that little squirming baby on the operation table, then kill it. We've invented transgenderism. There is no such thing. We've invented gay marriage. There is no such thing. We are taking the things that God calls an abomination, and we are calling them good And we think it is right, and it is the people who hold to what is good that are considered evil and wrong. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in Israel's day, as in our day more and more, it's morality not by the Scriptures and the revelation of God and the law that he wrote into your heart that you may have smushed and repressed and calloused your conscience is morality by the majority rather than by morality from the Scriptures. And so in the day of Judges, at high noon, it was midnight. It was as dark as could be. And so God allowed Israel to experience various expressions of judgment, and I can't help but think that God is doing the same. We'll talk about different kinds of judgments in the week to come. But Jesus can also say, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness, which forces us to ask a personal question. He is saying this to the believer. How clear is my vision this morning? Or do I have spiritual cataracts? Are my eyes out of focus, my spiritual eyes, the eyes of my heart? Paul prays for the eyes of their hearts as he writes to the church at Ephesus. If my eye is clear, then I will focus on that which is eternal because clear eyesight always governs my priorities. But if my eyes are deformed and diseased, I will only focus on the material things of this life, on the temporal, on this life only. And unfortunately, there are Christians who sometimes get blinded by their houses and their cars and their boats and their careers and their bank accounts and their fame and the praise of men. And when you put earthly values in front of God's values, you'll not be able to see God's way clearly. But don't miss the promise for those who have clear vision. He continues, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. In the illustration of treasure, Jesus again is speaking of future dividends. But now in the illustration of the eye, he's speaking of current dividends that result in benefits right now in this life that will ultimately influence your treasure in the next. When I thought about some of the current dividends, and there are many, I came up with a whole list. It's a sermon in itself, but let me just enumerate three. First of all, when the eye is clear, you'll have contentment. There'll be contentment in your heart. First Timothy 6.6, but godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. He'll go on to say, if we have food and clothing, with this we ought to be content. I doubt any of us in America are going to starve to death through this. 
What's the worst that could happen to you? The worst. You could die. And if you're saved, it becomes the best. Because absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And some of you listening to me this morning, you are not content. You've not learned contentment. And you can't buy contentment. You can't spend enough money to make your heart content because as soon as you spend money on that, there's something else you need to spend it on. And so your vision is clouded. A second dividend of clear vision is that God will meet all of our needs. He'll meet all of our needs. Paul says to the church at Philippi, and my God will supply all of your needs, not your wants, but your needs, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Some of you have needs that are not being met because your priorities have been out of whack. You've done your, even your finances the world's way. And I love guys like Dave Ramsey, but he uses very little scripture. He doesn't really demonstrate from the word of God the truth because he has as much a secular audience that he's trying to reach as Christians. You need to have your mind rooted in Scripture. And there are many good Christian financial ministries. And I have a course on managing your money God's way. It's about 150 pages. It's not for the weak and weary. It's at searchthescriptures.org. A third dividend of clear vision is you'll have a happy family life, a happy family life. Listen to what God said through the psalmist in Psalm 128. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. You know, I know men who can buy Wall Street, but they can't buy peace in their homes and they can't buy character in their children. Two different kinds of visions that results in two different kinds of results. You know, sometimes I just get so busy and on such a fast track, I just need to slow down and have kind of a special session with the Lord. And I feel like, oh, maybe my vision here is a little bit clouded, and, and I want to be single-minded. And I give everything that is important in life to me back to God, my wife, my children, my grandchildren, my health, my ministry, my church, everything that is important to me, and I submit it to the Lordship of Christ. You know how I can tell everything is right? Because I'm full of light. You say, what does that mean? I can't exactly describe it. But listen, when you have given every area under the lordship of Christ as you ought if you've met him, there's just a freedom, there's just a clarity that God brings. Now that brings me to the third principle on overcoming worry and fear and having a godly perspective. Principle number one is the question of our treasure. Principle number two is the question of our vision. Principle number three on your note-taking outline is the question of our service. Now, please notice, not only are there two treasures and two bodily conditions, Jesus now speaks of two masters. Let's read verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Now, please understand, Jesus did not say you shouldn't serve two masters, or he didn't say it's better to have one master than two. He taught you cannot, you cannot, you cannot serve two masters. That is, it is an impossibility to serve both God and wealth. 
Now, the word that Jesus uses for master is the Greek word kurios. It means master or lord or a slave owner. A person might be able in our day to work for two different employers at the same time, but no slave can serve two masters because a slave is owned by a single person. Single ownership and full-time service is the nature of a single master, the nature of slavery. Now, I've known Christians who have shown the love of money to run their lives. And I can promise you on the authority of this book, the Bible, that anyone who has a divided allegiance between God and wealth will give his devotion to wealth rather than God. To try to serve both God and wealth is idolatry, and God will have no idols in our hearts. Christ doesn't want just a place in your life. He doesn't want prominence in your life. He wants preeminence in your life. He wants every aspect of your life. Have you come to the place as a believer? And unfortunately, in the reformed culture of our day, we have front-loaded the gospel in an unfair and unhealthy way, and we've clouded it with works by the way we've defined repentance. R.C. Sproul had a twisted view on repentance, in my opinion. And I think he knows better now that he's in heaven. And I'm glad he had the gospel. But sometimes we make repentance almost a work. The word means to change your mind. And in the one book in the New Testament that is written to save people, the word repent doesn't once appear. But it is impossible to believe on the Lord Jesus without repenting. But unfortunately, in the reform movement of our day, we have made certain aspects of the believer's life. If they're not true, it means you're not saved, where there's a progressive dimension to the Lordship of Christ. Christ is principally directing His people. He's not talking about earning salvation, but laying up treasure in heaven. He's talking about people who might not have that perspective. Why? Because there's some unyielded areas in their life. And Christ doesn't want that kind of attitude. You can't say, well, Lord, you can have a little bit of my love. You can have a little bit of my time. You can have a little bit of my obedience. No, in God's economy, you cannot serve two masters. Again, no one can serve two masters. For he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. And so what we find here is some very helpful counsel on how to be successful in life. Do I have real treasure that I can never, ever lose? Do I have real wisdom such that my heart is full of light? Do I have genuine service because like a slave, I am totally yielded to the lordship of Christ? Okay, that brings us to the fourth principle for overcoming worry and fear, and is the question of our ambition. The question of our ambition. Now, it is unfortunate that this paragraph of Scripture is often isolated from the paragraph that went before. But Jesus distinctly connects the two. There's a cause-effect relationship between avarice and anxiety. And the Lord Jesus is admonishing us to receive real treasure, treasure that is in heaven. Then he admonishes us to receive real wisdom, the wisdom that comes to those who have clear vision. Then he admonishes us to true service, the kind of service that comes to someone who's a slave to his master. And now he is going to connect those three thoughts with the advice that follows. Dia in the Greek, therefore in some of your Bibles, or you could render it for this reason. 
In other words, he is making a cause-effect relationship. Think about it. A person who's filled with covetousness is going to be worried. These people who are fighting in Costco, one guy who took a bottle and slammed it over someone's head, he was worried. He was anxious. Someone might get something that he wanted so bad. And if you see your security in the here and now and the things you possess and the health that you enjoy and the job that you have, then out of necessity, you're going to be forced to worry. So Jesus is saying, don't fix your attention on the horizontal because you can't serve two masters. Don't be enslaved to an earthly perspective because you're going to become a worrier. And if you do this, you will have a distracted life and you will be filled with what ifs. What if I get the virus? What if I get sick? What if my children get sick? What if I lose my job? What if the economy goes into a depression? What if, what if, what if? I would define worry as fear in search of a cause because it is really assuming responsibility that's beyond your control. Now, I realize that some people enjoy worrying because there's pleasure in sin for a season, Moses will write. There's a certain gratification that comes from every sin. And some people who worry feel like they're accomplishing something. And so to help us to deal with this problem of worry, Jesus begins by giving us two principal reasons as why we worry. He is underscoring the why that will help us to under, overcome the problem of worry. The first reason is found here in verse 25. And it centers on the fact that some people have a distorted view of life, of the lesser things of life. Follow what he says, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink. And in that culture, if you've ever been to Israel, it is a dry place. Sometimes just having a glass of water and a filled cistern was critical. Nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now in verse 25, he starts with a command. Do not be worried. And the Greek verb is significant. And if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, it gives you the essence of the meaning you could translate it, stop being worried. That's what he's saying. Now, if you look at verse 31, he uses a different Greek tense, and it could be translated, don't ever worry. Two different kinds of verbs in the original. So the application is clear. If you are already a worry wart, worry wart then stop it. Don't let it get a grip on you. And if you're not a worry wart, then don't ever start being one. That's the thought bringing the two verbs together. And this is a very significant statement that he makes because God will never command you to do something that he doesn't give you the power to perform. When he tells you, don't worry, it's not like he's saying, jump over that house. That's an impossibility. God will always give you the grace. His grace is sufficient if we will humble ourselves and be recipients of that sanctifying grace. Look how verse 25 begins. For this reason, I say to you, <clears throat> do not be worried. Now, the King James interestingly renders this. Therefore, I say to you, take no thought for your life. Take no thought for your life. And by the way, that was a superb way of expressing the Greek three or 400 years ago. But today it might be a little confusing. 
And so the NAS and the New King James simply brings it out, do not be worried. Now, please know, Jesus is not forbidding thought as a way to deal with worry. He's not saying, well, just try not to think about it. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying just the opposite. He is commanding us to think. Now, we're asked first in verse 26 to look. Then in verse 28, he commands us to observe. And the Greek word that is used there means to take a very careful, close look at something. And the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, and the NASB translates it with a different word because it's a different Greek word. It says consider, because again, it's a word of deep scrutiny to perceive something and to take careful note of it. In other words, Jesus is saying, slow down, look, observe, consider, take note. And to help us to use our minds, he directs us first to the birds of the air and then to the lilies of the field which God has created. So this is not a prohibition against thought. For that matter, it's not a a prohibition against forethought, that is preparing for the future. This is a prohibition against anxious thought, about worrying. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried. Why? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And so it is unnecessary to worry about something that God, your Father, is already aware of. But not only is it unnecessary, it is unworthy. It betrays a false view of what life is really about. So Jesus asks a very penetrating question here in verse 25. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Yes, it is. You see what he's asking? If people are just bodies that need to be fed, watered, clothed, and housed, if we're like machines that just need to be protected, lubricated, and fueled, then a preoccupation with food and drink and clothing would be totally justified. And of course, that is precisely the pagan philosophy of his day, and more and more the pagan philosophy of our day. If God didn't create us, if God is not our Father, either in a creative way or in a spiritual way, if we've just evolved out of the glue into the zoo, that became you, you're some advanced two-legged monkey, then you ought to be totally consumed with these things. But we live in a day where people just live to live, to eat, drink, and be merry. But that is a reductionist view of life that is so contrary to the Word of God. And so the great majority of advertisements are really directed towards the body, whether it's underwear to display it its best, cosmetics to dress it up, deodorants and perfumes to smell it up, alcohol to drug it up, to drunk it up, exotic vacations to rest it up. But Jesus is simply asking, is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. We need not worry because there's a whole lot more to life than food and clothing. And since you have decided, if you're saved, to have God as your Father and to follow Him and to serve Him and not the things of this world, will not God who created you, who rebirthed you, sustain you for the purposes that He has for you? Yes, He will. God is pro-life, and even after the fall, God, God put an immune system in us because he's in favor of life. And so the first cause of worry that Jesus gives is rooted in a distorted view of the lesser things of life. Jesus is saying, you don't need to live like the pagan 
because there's a whole lot more to life than food and drink and clothing. But Jesus now gives us second causes to why people worry. Not only do they have a distorted view of the lesser things of life, but also due to a distorted view of their own worth before God. Worry, in essence, denies your own worth before God. And to illustrate it, Jesus turns to the subhuman aspect of God's creation. He uses the bird as an illustration for food, and he uses flour as an illustration for God's provision for clothing. Now, please underline, if you haven't already, the word look or behold, depending on your translation, in verse 26. And then in verse 28, the word observe or consider in verse 28. You see, in both cases, again, Jesus is asking us to think about God's providential loving care. And I can tell you why some of you, even as Christians, are anxious and worried on the inside. Because you're spending more time reading and watching the news than you are in God's holy book. You're spending more of your life consumed with sports and social media and complaining than you are putting your heart and soul into the Word of God. So yes, you're going to worry. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so he's going to become. So look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Look at the birds. Again, it's a command in Greek. Fix your eyes on the birds. Get a good look. Look carefully. They neither reap nor do they gather into barns. They don't harvest their crops and then gather them into big silos. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. And I should say parenthetically, that while the birds do not worry, they do work. They don't sit in their nests and wait God for God to drop a worm in them. They have to go out and scratch for each one. And even so, you don't just say, Lord, feed me. God expects us to work. He doesn't just drop money in our bank accounts. And so just as God provides the means for the birds in his creation, so he will give you strength and breath and ability to get out and earn your own living. So Jesus is not teaching that we should not work. He is teaching that we should not worry. Now think about the birds. They can't stir up, store up their worms. They have no refrigeration to put their fish in a safe place. And so to illustrate how to deal with worry, he doesn't turn to the ant. He turns to the birds of the sky. They have no guarantee of tomorrow. They don't wake up in the morning knowing where their next worm is going to come from. Yet they're not worried. They somehow know they'll be taken care of. God meets the needs of the birds. He brings the bird and the worm somehow providentially together. And so he asks the penetrating question, are you not worth much more than they? And of course, the answer is absolutely yes. It's irrefutable logic going from the lesser to the greater, a principle that's rooted all the way through Scripture. If God takes care of the birds and you are much more important than a bird, won't he take care of you? I mean, if a farmer feeds his chickens, won't he feed his children? Of course he will. And you have not just a creator like the bird, you have a heavenly father. They are his creatures. If you're born again and receive Christ, he's given you the power, the right, the exousia, the authority to become what you weren't before, a child of God. 
There's no salvation. There's no redemption for the birds. But God takes care of them 365 days a year, including Christmas. So there are two causes of worry. A warped view of what life really is and a warped view of our own worth before God. And so the Lord now goes on to help us to understand the cost of worry, and worry is a very costly thing. He reminds us that it accomplishes nothing. Look at verse 27. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Worrying will not make your life longer. If anything, it will make it shorter. You know, some people somehow think that they're accomplishing something when they worry, like the lady who said, don't tell me that worrying doesn't do any good. Most of the things I worry about never happen. (laughs) Well, it's well been said there are two kinds of problems that you face that we should worry about. Those problems that we can do something about and those problems that we cannot do anything about. So if you can do something about it, then do it. And if you can't, Then Jesus says, don't worry about it. And who of you, verse 27, who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Worry never drives a tear. Worry never lifted a burden. Worry never solved a problem. So worry accomplishes nothing. But then secondly, Jesus reminds us that worry demonstrates a lack of faith. Look now at verse 28 and 29. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed like one of these. The lilies out there in the meadow, they do not toil like the farmer does in the field, nor do the lilies go to a sewing class. And yet every first century reader of this text, they made their own clothes literally like the Proverbs 31 woman. They don't spin like the woman who works diligently in her home, making clothes, and yet God provides for them. And Jesus said they're more decked out than one of Israel's richest man, Solomon. So he argues further in verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive tomorrow and thrown in the furnace, they would take grass and it would be like kindling and it would, you know, like putting a a kindling piece of wood in your fire to make it spark up or some small little twigs. It was just a quick way to get those coals aflame again. If it's just alive today and then used for kindling, if God dresses up the common grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Oh my, that's convicting. You of little faith. So Jesus now moves from the birds of the sky to the flowers of the fields to teach us that God can be counted on and faith is important. Faith says, I believe your promises, Lord God. I trust that you will meet all of my riches according to my needs in Christ Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. In addition, Paul said in Romans 14 and verse 23, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Look, worry is not a weakness. It's a wickedness. It's sin. And we need to deal with it for what it is. It needs to be confessed and repented over. And until we face worry for what it is, we'll never meet victory. And so first, worry accomplishes nothing. Secondly, worry demonstrates a lack of faith. But third, 
It's the lifestyle not of a believer, but of a pagan. Look now, beginning in verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, the ta'ethne, the word Gentile in the New Testament is used sometimes in deference to a Jew, someone who is not a descendant of Abraham. But very often in Scripture, it's used of a synonym for a pagan, because most of the Gentiles in Christ's day were idolatrous, hardcore pagans who had suppressed the truth that God had given in creation and in conscience, and they become idolaters. And so he said, don't pray earlier like the pagans, like the ta'ethne, the Gentiles. And here he says, for the Gentiles, the pagans, eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. The Gentiles, the people of this world, those who have never met Christ in a saving, regenerate way. That's the way they live. But not so with you. Why? Your heavenly Father knows that you need. Circle those words, you need. He knows that you need all these things. We are thinking and acting like a pagan, not like someone who has a father who's in heaven. And worry is a wound to the heart of God, it's an insult to who he really is. It's a denial, not of his sovereignty. There's a difference in Scripture between sovereignty. It is, a, it, it is an insult to his providence. His daily care over the everything, everyday things of life. And Jesus is telling us when we are worried, we're not living like a child of God. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Do you know whose child you are? On another occasion, on a different day, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10. He said, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? In other words, he's saying God's oversight, his providence is so intense, we don't need to worry. On the one hand, he carefully sees everything that is going on in your home and in your life right now. On the other hand, he reminds us that to be worried and to be free from trouble is not the same. He does not tell us that a sparrow will not fall to the ground. And neither does he say that you will have no trouble in this life. But he does say that none of it will happen apart from his providential knowledge and consent and care. God tells us he attends the funeral of every sparrow. And when you face trials in this virus, erotic world of sorts... God is there with you. He says in verse 30 of that chapter, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows things about you that you don't even know about yourself. He knows the exact number of hairs that are on your head. They're all numbered. Therefore, he says, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus wants us to renew our minds. Get your mind off of the social media page this week and spend a little more time in the Word of God. I'm not against social media. We're using it for the kingdom of God. But get your mind out of that 24-7. Read through the whole Bible this year. Start having time alone with God and in His presence. It's critical to being cured from worry. And so we read in verse 33 here of chapter 6 of Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In all these things, food, clothing, drink, your needs will be added to you. A person who worries all the time, he is out of focus. A person who worries all the time, he's self-centered. 
His heart is not on the things of God. You tell me someone who never shares his faith, never spends time alone with God, never spends time in prayer, and I will show you a person who typically is filled with worry. But God is saying, you focus on my business, and I'll take care of your concerns. When you focus on the kingdom of God, God is going to meet your needs. I want to ask you this morning, do you care about the things that God really cares about? Are you investing in your local church? Do you even go to church? Sitting in a church will not make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage will make you an automobile. Millions of lost people go to church every Sunday. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. But once you are born again, God calls you to go to a church where the pastor actually opens the Bible like we're doing this morning and feeds you with truth because the Bible is milk, meat, honey, bread. It is food to grow your soul and to make you more and more like Christ. And so he wants us to keep our focus on his kingdom, the things that matter to God and his righteousness, having our character shaped more and more into the likeness of Christ, which happens as you renew your mind with scripture and in holy dependence and in prayer, you ask God to make the things you are reading true in your heart. And then he says in verse 34, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care about itself. All worry is essentially about the future. It's about tomorrow. But worry is experienced right now, this moment, today. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't borrow trouble. Just remember, God will take care of the things that you cannot handle because he loves you and he cares for you. Now, we all want the product. We don't want someone to look at our life and say, oh, he's a worry word. He's, he's always whining and crying and complaining and some crisis hits the country and he's shook to the core. We don't want that if we know Christ. But we don't always want the process. And Jesus is exhorting us, and he reminds us each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Trust me for today, because my grace will be sufficient for today. And when you drag the future into today, three things will happen, and you might want to jot these down by way of application there in your outline. Number one, first, worry will blind you to God's blessings. If you worry, you will blind yourself to the blessings that God has given you today because you're consumed with tomorrow. You won't really be a thankful thing. And many who are listening to me today, one, you're an American. Two, you've got fine health. Most people listening still have a job. You may have a spouse. You may have very healthy, wonderful children and grandchildren. Look, I've been to parts of the other world, some 60 countries, where people beg the opportunity to come to America. They dream about coming to this nation. God bless this nation beyond any other nation in the world, maybe apart from Israel. 
Why? Because we put him first in our founding days. For 150 years, we led in taking the gospel to the world. Not every American, but the evangelical church did. And God had every reason to prosper America. Very often, God blesses a the people around a person. God blessed the people around Joseph and God blessed America around the evangelical church. Why? Because we're taking the gospel, the most important thing in God's heart, to the whole world. But I want to tell you, when you worry, you will not see God's blessings. You'll be so consumed with your problems that you're missing the blessings of what you have today. Secondly, worry will drain you of your God-given strength. Worry will drain you of your God-given strength. The Lord is teaching that worry is not just useless, it's harmful. It's like sugar in your gas tank. It's like sand and a fine piece of machinery. It will wear you down. It will wear you out. King David said this in Psalm 103, verse 14. For he, Yahweh, knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God who knows you best in everything about you, who wove you together in your mother's womb, he knows what you can bear. You know, when we talk about the, uh, a truck, what it can bear, we, we rate it as one ton or two ton or ten ton, and that obviously is not the weight of the truck, it's what that truck is designed to carry. The manufacturer who made the frame knows precisely what that frame can bear. And God is saying, he knows your frame. He knows exactly what you can bear this morning. But worry will overload you today with tomorrow's problems. It will break down the springs of life. Your spiritual truck, when it's filled with worry, will begin to fall apart. And you'll be driven by things instead of seeking God. Third and finally, Worry will keep many people out of heaven. Worry will keep many people out of heaven. Now, certainly for the born-again Christian who holds on so tight to the things, to the concerns and of this world that consume him, he will break fellowship with God, and he may spend decades wasting his life on vain, foolish things. Why? Because when you are consumed with things in this world only, you have broken fellowship with God. The Spirit who lives in you will not fill you. And you will miss His instruction through the Holy Scripture and His direction as He unfolds His plan for your life. And that's bad for the Christian. But I want to remind you, it will keep many people out of the kingdom of God. Do you remember what Jesus told in the parable of the sower? It's a parable that has been greatly abused. Some say, well, the first is the unsaved person. The next two soils the carnal Christian. And the fourth soil is the spirit-filled Christian. And some popular writer who sold millions of books, no sense in me dragging up his name. That was his position. That's just wrong. That's not even close to what the text teaches. He's given in the first three soils. Three kinds of people who never enter into the kingdom of God if they pursue with those problems. And he says this of the thorny soil. Let me read it from Luke's account. It's found in all synoptics. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and they go on their way. They are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. There are people all over America today who are worried. 
And for some of the people who are worried today, because things have become their idol, they will never see the inside of God's kingdom. Now understand, that's not God's desire. God takes no pleasure, this scripture says, even in the death of the wicked. God wishes for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God desires all men to be saved. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's not God up in heaven. You're going to heaven. You're going to hell. You're going to heaven. You're going to hell. That's gross reformed error in our day. It is evil. It is false teaching. It is wrong. No, God looks down and he sees millions, billions of people. And he desires all men to go to heaven. But he will not save all because he's given everyone a free will And so we must decide. God says, listen, the wages of sin is death. The penalty is death. You can't do anything if you've murdered and are worthy of death to satisfy the law. If the law says you must die. But God who set the penalty so loved the world, he gave his son to pay the penalty. And if you will come as a bankrupt sinner and exchange your sin that is evil and wrong and needs to be forgiven in exchange exchange for his righteousness, he will write your name in the book of life. He'll place the Holy Spirit in you where you won't just be religious, you'll be born again. Everything will change. And now you will be in a position where you can grow and mature And become the kind of person that God designed you to be. You say, I'm not sure what that means. You should tune in at 5.30 tonight when we do our Meet the Pastor. We'll not only have it in here for around 10 people who show up at the door, but we'll live stream it. We had a couple that drove all the way from Pooler, Georgia last week who received Christ last Sunday night because they wanted to get this issue settled in their hearts. And if you're not sure that if this were your last day, I saw this morning in the news a 34-year-old man in the prime of health who four days ago came down with the virus and this morning he's dead. You say, that won't happen to me. It can happen to anyone. And we need to be ready to meet God. Today is the day of salvation. You can be forgiven today if you will call upon Christ to be your Savior. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Wherever you may be, I want to invite you There in the quietness of your heart, if you've never met Christ as your personal Savior, maybe you have been a member of a church, maybe you've been baptized, maybe you're a highly religious person, but there's only one way to heaven. There's salvation in no one else, no other name by which you can be saved. And God says, because Jesus didn't die for most or part of your sin, but all of it, if you're willing to admit sin is sin, something that needs to be forgiven and changed, If you will call on Christ's name, he'll save you right now. Whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Would you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I deserve hell. I deserve eternal death. But thank you that you came and bore the penalty for my sin. You promised that if I would receive your gift, something you said that is not earned, but like with all gifts are received, that if I would receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, you would forgive me and save me today. Knowing that you cannot lie, I ask you, Lord Jesus, save me. My friend, if you prayed that prayer, go to communitybiblechurch.us. 
and you text 94090, and you can fill out a visitor's card there, and you can tell us that you received Christ. Let us know. CBC US, text it to 94090. Now, Father, for the rest of us who have met you in a true saving way, help us in these days to be distinctly different from the pagans around us. Help us not to be overrun with the news such that it is crowding out the truth of your word in our heart. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.